0: Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history. It's also made possible in part by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens at 1320 Highland Avenue in the O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida.
1: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brotmarkel and coming up on the program, 2012 is the 125th anniversary of the founding of Edenville and the 75th anniversary of the Zora Neale Hurston novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God.
2: Well, we say that uh, Zora Neale Hurston and the Edenville community are two sides of the same hand
1: we'll hear about the prehistoric south beach diet and poet laura writing jackson in florida
3: they were always a little timid because she was a little intimidating although folks that got to know them i think liked them both
1: 65 years ago the everglades became a national park all that ahead on florida frontiers
4: this song they call shove it over and it's a Latin rhythm pretty generally distributed all over florida It was sung to me by Charlie Jones on railroad construction camp near Lakeland, Florida.
3: Uh,
4: That I gathered that in '33,
2: 1933. When I get in the Illinois, I'm going to spread the news about the Florida boys. Shove it over. Hey, hey, hey! Oh, can't you lie it? Ah, oh, shackle, lack, a lack, a lack, a lack, a <coughs> Can't you move it? Hey, hey, hey! Oh, can't you try?
1: 2012 is the 125th anniversary of the founding of Eatonville, the oldest incorporated African-American town in the United States. 2012 is also the 75th anniversary of the novel Their Eyes Were Watching God, written by Eatonville's most famous resident, Zora Neale Hurston. In the 1930s and 40s, writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston was a celebrated figure of the Harlem Renaissance. Hurston is best remembered for her 1937 novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, the story of Janie Crawford and her attempts at self-realization. Hurston's other novels include Jonas Gordvine, the story of an unfaithful man with an understanding wife, Moses, Man of the Mountain, a retelling of the biblical story of Moses, and Seraph on the Swanee, Hurston's only book that features white people as main characters. As an anthropologist who studied under the renowned Franz Boas, Hurston published two collections of folklore, Mules and Men and Tell My Horse. Hurston also wrote dozens of short stories, essays, and dramatic works. In 1948, Hurston's reputation and career were destroyed by false accusations that almost drove her to suicide. By the time Hurston died in 1960, she was broke, forgotten, and her books were out of print. Today, Zora Neale Hurston is again recognized as an important 20th century writer. Her work is taught in high school and college classes around the world, and two annual festivals celebrate her achievements. The Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities is held in Eatonville during the last week of January, and ZoraFest is held in Fort Pierce in March. Zora Neale Hurston grew up in Eatonville, Florida, the oldest incorporated town entirely governed by African Americans. N. Y. Nathiri is founding director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community and the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities.
2: For Zora Neale Hurston, Eatonville represents the uh, quintessential um, cultural impact that people of African ancestry, particularly rural southern uh, people in this country, um, contribute to the culture of the of the United States, and because she grew up in Eatonville, uh, an all-black community, where there was not artificial um, lens of, of of viewing people, as she says in, in Mules and Men, uh, you got in Eatonville, you got what your what your strengths brought you, uh, if you were an energetic, uh, aggressive, um, productive person, then that's who you were. Uh, If you were a lazy, no count, uh, ne'er do well, that's who you were and you couldn't use as an excuse what they or the outside society uh, did to you or against you. And at the same time, um, as as a trained observer, uh, as a person who had studied under Dr. Franz Boas, uh, a father of, Amer- of American anthropology, as a person who uh, had access to her native village and that community, she recognized the beauty, the intrinsic beauty of, of the people of her heritage group. And not only recognized that beauty, but was able to present it in a way that others can recognize it. Uh, Perhaps not so much during her lifetime with her contemporaries in Harlem, uh, some of whom thought that she was entirely too folksy, but the point is that uh, work that is truly of merit lives and Today, um, Zora Neale Hurston's work, her literature, her genius, is acknowledged and celebrated uh, throughout the literary world.
1: Zora Neale Hurston's literary career began even before she graduated from Barnard College in 1927. In 1925, Hurston's short story Spunk was included in a respected anthology called The New Negro. While attending college in New York, Hurston worked with Harlem Renaissance contemporaries including Langston Hughes and Wallace Thurman on the literary magazine Fire. After earning her Bachelor of Arts degree in Anthropology, Hurston continued her graduate studies at Columbia University. In 1929, Hurston moved to the quiet town of O'Galley in Brevard County, Florida to write her first and most important collection of African American folklore. Florence M. Turcott is literary manuscripts archivist at the University of Florida.
5: Zora came to O'Galley in um, April of 1929 and she her goal was to find a little place where she could she could write and she could have peace and quiet. Um, She found that in a one-room cottage here in O'Galley and she rented it. She had a, a pretty good rental agreement and she used that time to fish in the Indian River and to enjoy nature and she put together her folklore stories in a book which was published called Mules and
6: Men.
1: Virginia Lynn Moylan is author of the book Zora Neale Hurston's Final Decade published by University Press of Florida.
6: The book Mules and Men was published in 1935 and was essentially a nonfiction account of Hurston's adventures and experiences as a folklorist and anthropologist in the late 1920s and early 1930s. It's divided into two sections. The first section is devoted to her experiences in Eatonville collecting folklore and includes 70 of her glorious folktales, including why women always take advantage of men. The second section covers the period that she uh, did research in New Orleans into who do religion and practices and even became a priestess And the book is important, not just from the standpoint of its entertainment value, but it was the first book of folklore that recorded the tales exactly as they were spoken. And today it is still considered the preeminent collection of African-American folklore.
1: 75 years ago, Zora Neale Hurston wrote her best known and much loved work, the novel Their Eyes Were Watching God. Flo Turcotte, Lynn Moylan, and N. Y. Nefiri.
5: Their Eyes Were Watching God is just, it's an it's history it's fiction it's pathos it's it's tragedy all rolled up together in one incredible literary gem and it, making history come alive is sort of what what i'd like to do and what zora that's what excites me so much about zora is that she she di- she fictionalized real life and said a lot about the human condition and a lot about life in Florida during during her um, stay here.
6: My personal favorite work of Hurston's is, by far, Their Eyes Are Watching God. It's a, no, it's a beautiful novel. It's a love story about a woman who not only finds her true love, but she finds her own inner strength and her voice. And it just doesn't get any better than that.
2: Zora Neale Hurston is a part of my family lore. I did not really understand who she was in the literary uh, realm until I was uh, older. I was actually I actually read *The Eyes of Watching God* when my after our first son was born. Uh, that that book was a Penguin classic that cost ninety nine cents. And when I was trying to uh, while my son was napping, I would that's how I that's how I read that book. I I know Zora Neale Hurston from my, my mother's mother uh, telling us about her, her uh, companionship with Zora Neale Hurston, sometimes uh, scaring me uh, with uh, uh, folk tales from Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, in fact, my husband uh, did uh, literary research on Zora Neale Hurston. There are any number of people that were around me over a period of time, uh, but I did not truly come to understand who she was until I read that book and um, then began to reconnect some of the, uh, some of the impact that she, that she had.
1: Throughout the 1930s and 40s, Zora Neale Hurston was celebrated as an accomplished and sometimes controversial writer, folklorist, and anthropologist. In 1948, Hurston was devastated when she was falsely accused of molesting the ten-year-old son of her former Harlem landlady. The charges were dismissed, and the boy recanted his claims. But Hurston's reputation and career were destroyed. And why a theory?
2: She was falsely accused of molestation of a, a young boy. Um, falsely accused, completely uh, vindicated, because she was not in the United States when the alleged abuse occurred, or or crime occurred. But the black press um, picked up the story after she was vindicated and uh, really ruined her reputation. Uh, I think that she uh, fled back to her home state.
1: After leaving New York, Hurston lived briefly in Miami and Bell Glade before moving to Brevard County. She moved into the same O'Galley cottage where she had been happy and productive at the beginning of her career. When Hurston was unable to purchase her cottage in O'Galley, she moved to an apartment in Cocoa and then to a trailer on Merritt Island. During this period, she worked as a librarian. Virginia Lynn Moylan.
6: Hurston was fired from Patrick Air Force Base as a technical librarian, basically because she supported a whistleblower um, colleague who had turned in one of the supervisors for uh, destroying documents without going through the proper authorization. So she collected unemployment for a while and finally was offered a job by a man named C.E. Bolin, who had founded a newspaper in Fort Pierce called the Fort Pierce Chronicle. So she moved very soon afterward and went to Fort Pierce to take the job in 1957.
1: Sora Neil Hurston died in January 1960 in the St. Lucie County Welfare Home. She was broke, forgotten, and her books were out of print. Florence M. Turcott.
5: She was a ward of the, of the of the county and when she died, her effects thus were ordered burned. They were ordered destroyed. Um, Nobody had come forward to claim them. Um, A friend of hers, who was a sheriff's deputy, was going by the nursing home at the time and stopped and literally doused the flames and uh, saved a bunch of her um, manuscripts that were uh, about to be
1: destroyed. Today, Zora Neale Hurston is more popular than ever. Annual festivals in Eatonville and Fort Pierce celebrate her legacy. Hurston's work is taught in high schools and colleges around the world. And why not theory?
2: An Ivy International Baccalaureate uh, teacher of 11th grade students in Hampton, Virginia, is planning to uh, bring her students to Edenville for a field trip. And as we were talking about the planning and the budget, I said, well, will they be uh, doing Disney or Universal? She said, no. <laughs> we're coming to Eatonville, and that's the only reason that we're coming to Florida, is to coming to Eatonville. And after we do this uh, day, then we will be returning. So it's, uh, it's uh, quite interesting to see that now, if you're going to be educated, you have to have read Zora Neale Hurston.
1: We spoke with Virginia Lynn Moylan, author of the book Zora Neale Hurston's Final Decade, Florence M. Turcott, literary manuscripts archivist at the University of Florida, and N.Y. Nathiri, founding director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community and the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities.
2: The captain got a pistol, he tried to play bad, but I'm gonna take it if it make me mad, or shove it over. Hey, hey, or oh, Can't you lie? Nah, shaker, like a, like a, like a, like a, like a. Ah! Can't you move
6: it? Hey, hey, hey or oh, Can't
1: you try? This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokmarke. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to shop for great books on Florida history and culture, watch exclusive video, search our collections at the Library of Florida History, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, The Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. In
7: 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This Moment in Florida History features Darcy McMahon, Exhibits Director at the Florida Museum of Natural History.
4: When Spaniards first landed in Florida, they encountered native groups who had lived here for thousands of years. The Calusa, headquartered in southwest Florida, were coastal dwellers and amazingly successful fisher folk. They prospered without growing crops and according to Spaniards were healthy, strong, and long-lived. I like to think of the Calusa as inventors of the first South Beach diet. The archaeology of their garbage dumps, or what we call middens, shows they ate mostly fish and shellfish, with some animals and plants from the land, along with squash, papaya, and chili peppers, probably grown in household gardens. This high-protein, low-carb diet supported a culture that boasted fine art, high society, and a rich belief system, along with political power and good health. I find the Spanish accounts of roasted, boiled, and barbecued fish and oysters enjoyed with friends and neighbors to be inspiration for celebrating our coastal waters and the long rich tradition of Florida seafood.
7: Darcy McMahon is Exhibits Director at the Florida Museum of Natural History. This Moment in Florida History was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council, with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and
1: culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Poet Laura Riding Jackson was born in New York in 1901. She lived in England in the late 1920s and 30s before moving to Wabaso, Florida. Janie Gold has more.
0: Florida has always beckoned literary luminaries, from Harriet Beecher Stowe to Hemingway, Robert Frost, and countless others. The poet Laura Riding Jackson and her husband, the critic Skylar Jackson, moved to Wabasso in 1943. Their cracker cottage is maintained by a nonprofit group that now has literary events there. Charlotte Terry, a member of the group, says Skylar Jackson was enchanted by Wabasso's Canopy
3: Roads. Uh, apparently he fell in love with that and he wanted to show it to Laura. I've always
0: heard that the home didn't have electricity or indoor plumbing. True or is it embellished somewhat?
3: Actually it was true they had an outhouse. Laura was forced to put a little electricity into her little home when she was in her late 80s and had to have caretakers and they refused to come to the house till they had some lighting and electricity. Her attorney, Renee Vandervoorty from Sebastian Strongly recommended that she do that if she wanted to stay in her home.
0: The Jacksons had been drawn to Wabasso by its small town ambiance.
3: It was a very quiet little back country place, and they had both sort of given up any of social life that they may have had before. And, and Laura had had quite an exciting social life. She was educated in Cornell, married one of the professors there, moved to the south where she became a member of the fugitive writing group out of Vanderbilt. Why were they called the fugitives? Were they just a little bit out there? That's a good question. I'm not 100% sure, but I think they were at the beginning of the modernist poet. She was the only woman that was ever invited to be a member. And it was about that time that Robert Graves, the poet laureate of England, heard about her and read some of her work and eventually wrote to her. At this point, I think she was divorced from her first husband. Graves invited her to come to England and then accompany him to Cairo, Egypt, where he had a professorship. She accompanied him and his wife, who were children. They went back to England and then eventually moved to day in Majorca. It was from there that they were introduced to Skylar Jackson who lived in America and he invited Robert and Laura to come over and visit. She and he became very involved, shall we say, and that marriage dissolved. You mean his marriage ended? Yeah, Skylar Jackson's marriage ended. Laura was never married to Robert Graves. She, at that point, did not believe in certain things and um, marrying him was one of them. And she married Skylar Jackson She and Schuyler were apparently responsible for putting the wife away in a sanatorium. That was another reason that they came south.
0: They grew citrus to finance their riding.
3: They never used any pesticides. They were really one of the first environmentally sensitive citrus farmers that I'm aware of. They lived a very simple life.
0: Were they accepted by the fine folk of Wabasso?
3: I think they were actually still pretty reclusive. There are interviews that we've had of people that lived around there or that worked for them, and I think they were always a little timid because she was a little intimidating, although folks that got to know them, I think, liked them both.
0: She was a poet, she was a critic. From what I've read in my quick Internet research, she renounced poetry at some point. What was that all about?
3: We just recently had a two-day seminar with Barrett Watton, who is a professor at Wayne State University, and he teaches some classes on her. She did renounce it, but his take on it is that she spent the rest of her life kind of writing about it and talking about it. She spent the last years of her life writing a book called The Rational Meaning of Words. It's a very thick volume that I will probably never get through. It's a very intellectual (laughs) piece of work, which I'm not qualified to really read.
0: Laura Riding Jackson died in 1991. You said she loved the beautiful canopied roads of Wabasso and Jungle Trail. How do you think she'd feel if she came back now and saw what's become of North Indian River County?
3: She wouldn't be pleased about it at all. In fact, I'm sure she wouldn't like me for a lot of reasons.
0: Who reads her now?
3: Anybody that really knows poetry knows who she is.
1: That was Charlotte Terry. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. 65 years ago, the Everglades became a national park, an important milestone in the history of the environmental movement. Bill Dudley has this report.
8: Today we mark the achievement of another great conservation victory. We have permanently safeguarded an irreplaceable primitive area, the Everglades National Park. Here in Everglades
7: City, December 6, 1947, at one end of the runway at the tiny airport in Everglades City, President Harry Truman dedicates a new national park. University of Florida historian Jack Davis. The
9: day before, state workers sprayed 500 acres of wetland around Everglades City where the ceremony took place with DDT. 4,500 people attended. Uh, Apparently no one was swatting at mosquitoes.
7: Everglades City resident, Von Seal Davidson, remembers the day.
5: They came to the school and asked some of us girls to serve the president. They had a long table with all the food set up there. I remember baked beans and coleslaw and the security was really tight even then, especially when the president came through the line.
8: In this park, we shall preserve tarpon and trout bear, deer, crocodiles, and alligators.
10: Everglades National Park was the first national park that was really established for biology and biodiversity as well as pretty scenery.
7: Journalist Michael Grunwald, author of The Swamp, The Everglades, Florida, and the Politics of Paradise.
10: Even the first superintendent of the park admitted there was nothing in the Everglades that would make Johnny Q. Public suck in his breath. He described it as birds sky, monotonous distances, and water. The point was that it didn't have the kind of rugged cliffs and rolling hills and geysers and craters that we associate with national parks.
9: Putting ecology on the founding agenda of a national park in 1947 was a historic first. In 1947, the science of ecology was still trying to establish a foothold in the American Academy of Sciences. Scientists had hardly begun to understand the ecological complexities of the Everglades in in the mid-1940s.
8: Here is land, tranquil in its quiet beauty, serving not as the source of water, but as the last receiver of it. To its natural abundance, we owe the spectacular plant and animal life
10: that distinguishes this place from all others in the country. There was a a real thought that we just put a fence around the southern Everglades and then basically capture every drop of water that falls in the rest of the Everglades and squirt it this way and that way to serve the needs of the sugar industry in the northern Everglades and the development industry in the eastern Everglades.
9: Everglades National Park, over a 60-year life, has had to contend with the nearly 50% loss of the ecosystem, that is the larger Everglades themselves, that sustains the park. The vice grip of swelling urban population growth, the expansion of agriculture planted right smack in the middle of the natural flow of the river of grass that feeds the park, and it has had to contend with a fouled up, what was then called a comprehensive water management and flood control project launched by the Army Corps of Engineers just a few months after the dedication of the park.
8: Like liberty itself, conservation must be fought for unceasingly. There are always plenty of hogs who are trying to get our natural resources for their own personal benefit.
7: But the founding of the national park did lead to other environmental progress. The foiling of the Miami Port Authority's plans to build the world's largest jet port in 1970 and the establishment of the Big Cypress National Preserve. Today, per square mile, there's more protected land in South Florida than any other place in continental U.S.
10: The Everglades is now the most studied wetland on Earth and there's a fair amount of scientific consensus about what has to be done. There's also a great political consensus that the Everglades ought to be saved.
7: I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council.
1: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Established in 1856, the Florida Historical Society is the oldest existing cultural organization in the state. Become a member online at myfloridahistory.org. Find us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
0: The weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history. It's also made possible in part by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens at 1320 Highland Avenue in the O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida.